Hi, listeners. We're back with another episode of Understand South Carolina. We're talking about the coronavirus pandemic again this week and specifically which communities in our state have been disproportionately affected. I'm Emery Parker. And I'm Emily Williams. We're going to be talking with health and business reporter Mary Catherine Wilderman and public safety and breaking news reporter Greg Yee. They recently teamed up to write about a troubling trend emerging in the state. South Carolina's Hispanic population has been particularly hard hit by COVID-19. And that aligns with national statistics, too, that show black and Hispanic communities have been harmed by the virus at higher rates than white Americans. So just to start out, MK, because you wrote about this First, when did we start hearing from from health officials in the state who were raising alarms about the Hispanic community being disproportionately affected? Um, this started when when Greenville had a, a cases spike, right? Yeah, Greenville had um, a very rapid surge, I guess, in cases in early June, and um, it DHEC said at the time that thirty percent of those new cases be identified as part of the Hispanic or Latino community. Um, I'll I'll say as a quick note to sort of frame this discussion, um, there is a difference between those two things. So Hispanic people are those who speak Spanish. Uh, Latino people are those from Latin America, right? So um, I I believe what we're talking about is Hispanic (laughs) people, but that came up in our reporting a couple of times, I think, where uh, people seem to use them interchangeably and, and they're not. Um, but, but yes, DHEC said that they had begun to do some, um, specific outreach into the Hispanic communities, um, through radio interviews and, you know, targeted ads and targeted testing events where, you know, Hispanic folks are known to live. So, um, that was sort of their response to that, but they, you know, we haven't had a lot of clear answers as to why that is happening. And uh, when you said, you know, 30, 30 percent of their uh, cases there during that that spike, how did that compare just just proportionally to how large that community is in the Greenville area? Yeah, so in Greenville, nine point five percent of the population identifies as Hispanic or Latino. Um, And so that's that's. Higher than the state average, which is um, a few percentage points lower than that, but but still, again, stack that up against the thirty percent rise that DHEC was pointing to, and you see a pretty striking disparity, um, and one that seems wider than any of the others we've um, seen play out so far during this pandemic. So it's it's definitely a severe problem. So kind of the the first that we heard of some communities being more affected than others, right, is that we heard that um, Black communities in South Carolina were contracting the virus and and, and, and dying from the virus, too, at, at higher rates. Do we know where where those percentages are right now? Of course, these things are these things are changing. But I, I believe it was early April that we first started to hear more more reports about um, the black population being being more severely affected. Do we know what that looks like at at this point in the outbreak? Yeah. So among all reported cases, 32% are in the Black community, Um, keeping in mind that uh, the Black community is not, you know, the majority of the South Carolina population. You have to think of everything in terms of how that stacks up to um, their 
population relative to others in the state. And so while 46% of cases right now are in white people, um, white people make up a bigger portion of the population than um, really any other race. Uh, and then in regard to the Hispanic community, it, we that, that's an ethnicity, so um, DHEC reports that differently, but uh, the problem is that we don't know the ethnicity in a full third of cases. And so we know that at least 12% of cases are among Hispanic people, but it could be more. So yeah, according to the Census Bureau, uh, South Carolina's racial and ethnic breakdown is um, 60, or 68.6% is listed as white alone. Uh, 27% is black or African-American, and 6% is Hispanic or Latino. Uh, and then there's some smaller numbers for like Asian and two or more races. We, we've talked a lot about Greenville. Is, is this a phenomenon unique to Greenville, or what does the picture look like in the rest of the state? No, it's not unique to Greenville. Um, the, the overall kind of disparate impact with, um, you know, among, uh, ethnic minorities is, is I think pretty well documented nationwide. Um, yeah, you have, uh, as MK was saying earlier, you have black populations across South Carolina being pretty disproportionately impacted, uh, and, you know, health officials are finding similar things in other States as well. Uh, and in areas that have like, significant native american populations uh you know different reservations and things like that we're seeing huge impacts there um i have a few friends that do reporting on the navajo nation and they're telling me about like yeah it's pretty pretty bad out there in new mexico and arizona uh but to bring it back here to to uh south carolina like in the charleston area we've also seen some pretty disparate impacts um with the hispanic population uh or Latino population um, locally. And uh, MK was able to get some figures from Trident Health that we use to report our story. Yeah, so the from, from Trident Medical Center, which is in um, North Charleston, uh, and, and they're a hospital that really catches geographically a pretty wide array of patients just because I think yeah. of their um, position along the highway. Uh, they're they're right along twenty six, um, but they they told us at the time uh, this is about a week and a half ago now that forty percent of new patients were Hispanic and that is just frankly shocking um, because well they at think, first it was thirty three percent and then yeah. they adjusted the figure to up to forty within like three or four days right yeah yeah, yeah. so they 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 are seeing that as an increasing problem and granted MUSC and Roper St Francis. Um, which are both located further down in Charleston, of course, um, they, they are not reporting the same trend. So, so that's really interesting. Um, so I think this is not something that we're seeing at every hospital in the state, not seeing universally, but um, at some, certainly. That's interesting. So do we have any inkling as to like why that might be? Yeah, we, we reached out to a few folks um, that are doing work with the Latino population. Um, there's a... Uh, a woman by the name of Lydia Cotton 
um, who uh, works with ArtPot. It's a local like multicultural outreach center that um, that does a lot of work with uh, Latinos up in North Charleston and Hanahan and and anyway they they do a variety of work on like community projects and kind of bridging the gap between um, Spanish speakers and like government and police and things like that and so. As uh, throughout the outbreak, um, she was telling me, yeah, we're doing a lot of outreach. We're trying to raise awareness of masks, uh, you know, um, all the kind of advice that DHEC and uh, CDC has been putting out. You know, when I approached her with that statistic that we got from Trident, she was not surprised at all. Um, she said that they have, you know, they're slowly earning kind of trust and getting that message across. But she said that it's been in kind of pretty challenging um, for some people that they talk to to even recognize that the pandemic is a real threat or that, you know, it's not more than like the flu or something like that. And I think there's a variety of, of kind of different um, sort of different factors that play into that. There's, you know, for some people sort of, um, you know, distrust of like any, um, I guess I'll say establishment or kind of authority, um, you know, groups, and that can even extend to healthcare. Um, you know, you have places, you know, here locally where there's um, undocumented uh, immigrants, and you know, they might be afraid that they, if they go to the hospital, they might end up on the radar of, uh, you know, of immigration and stuff like that. Um, and you, you also have, you know, monetary considerations. Uh, she was telling me that even just with testing, uh, which there's like free centers that pop up, but apparently there were people coming back and saying, oh, well, we got charged or we had to pay something or we had to do this. And that word kind of quickly spreads throughout these communities. You know, these are pretty, pretty small communities and, and stuff spreads through word of mouth or on Facebook uh, very quickly. Um, and those are just some of the things that play into that. One of the more interesting things that I talked about with Lydia was um, this, this kind of perspective that was going around. Um, and she said that basically the, the information being put out by state officials, by DHEC is, um, you know, she said that not enough of it goes out in Spanish and that it's not being kind of broadcasted adequately to them. Um, and so there's, you know, she described really an information vacuum. And so especially for, um, for Latinos that, you know, don't speak very much English um, or don't at all, they are relying on either like national Spanish media or, frankly, news from, you know, from their friends and family that live abroad. And so they, you know, she was saying, oh, you know, there's like stories going around the community of, um, she was an example of like a woman and she didn't say where, but a, a which town or anything, but a woman in Mexico that like was sick and then eventually went to the hospital and was diagnosed with coronavirus and then like left the hospital, but was tracked down by like police and forcibly brought back to the hospital. And like that story spread among uh, a part of the Latino community here. And the attitude that she was describing was that a lot of people don't want to seek any kind of treatment or get tested because then they think, um, 
you know, a few things. They're going to be forced to do things. And also uh, there was a kind of a belief that if you go to the hospital, you probably will die. And she put that pretty bluntly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, we also talked to uh, Fetter Healthcare, which is a primary care network um, here in Charleston that does a lot of testing or has been doing a lot of testing with COVID-19. And, yeah. and they have a, a program specific to migrant workers. Um, and in, in past years, they've been able to make inroads with those employers and with those commu- you know, communities of workers, basically, um, by reaching out early in the spring. Um, and you know, by around this time, they have a really solid connection to those people. And they're able to provide all kinds of healthcare services all for free, which is great. Um, but I think you know, given some of the factors that Greg mentioned with distrust and lack of information, it's both the workers and their employers are less willing to let better in is what they told me. And so I think because employers are concerned about their workforce being out of commission because of the quarantine, right? So they would have to be isolated for, you know, the 10 to 14 days. Um, That would be a huge workforce implication for, you know, companies, employers that are already struggling because of the pandemic's economic effects. Um, And so that it's just, it's factor after factor, you know, and I think that um, it has a lot to do with history and with distrust in the medical and government institutions that we kind of want to look for a simple answer and you know, a simple source, like, if they, oh, all these people work for this employer or the, all these people are getting this message that's wrong. But it's it's so many um, things that culminate and make it so difficult to reach these communities during the most difficult, you know, <laughs> health moment mm-hmm. we've had in yeah. decades, you know, so lots of things. Can we go through maybe the reality of, of what some of these concerns are? Um, you mentioned, um, for example, and I can completely understand because it makes sense to me where, you know, if you were uh, undocumented, um, you might be hesitant to, uh, you know, access the, the healthcare system. What, what's the reality there? Is, is there like a risk of, of people being like deported or, or something if they seek healthcare access? Does that actually put them on official radars or what? Well, what Fetter told me is, is no, although there's understandable fear that they could be. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that varies based on the healthcare organization, but in Fetter's case, they, they are not required and they do not pass along that information to any sort of authority. Um, but you know, again, they, these people are seeing the DHEC vans out, you know, these are government officials right. as far as they see it. Um, and I, I literally heard that in Beaufort County where there's there's an elevated um, number of Hispanic, Hispanic people. Um, not I wouldn't call it a hotspot, according to DHEC, but there's about 20 percent of the cases were um, among Hispanic people that I heard that a DHEC van showed up to kind of a migrant worker site and people literally just ran. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Emory, the other thing I would mention is that with testing, the testing providers have to ask for ID because right. yeah. they need to be able to call back and verify that the person they're giving the results to is the correct person. Um, and so they, they're, they're required to ask, but that's really scary 
for some, especially right. for undocumented people, of course. So, yeah, like you're saying, it just seems like there are so many different factors building into this. One of the, if I'm remembering this correctly, one of the people that you spoke with for your story um, even mentioned religion, right? What what was what was that element of it? I, I thought that bit, was interesting. Yeah. So I spoke with um, with two other people that have been doing outreach. Um, it's a, a, a mother and son, uh, Daylin and Brian Marquez, and um, they participated in kind of a community event with uh, North Charleston police last week um, where they, they went out near um, Ashley phosphate and, um, and stall uh, road. And they just kind of went around and passed out masks and, um, and just sort of tried to talk to people and, and um, you know, generally raise awareness about coronavirus. And, and they said that, um, it was Daylin that was saying that, you know, unfortunately among some, uh, a pretty substantial number of people, there's an attitude of, well, you know, we'll just pray on it and it's in God's hands and, you know, you really can't do anything about it. Um, and, you know, whatever happens, happens. Um, and so for some people that's translated into kind of an attitude of, well, you know, just sort of business as usual, kind of mingling with the same people as they usually do, not really taking any uh, social distancing precautions or um, or anything like that. What about the use of, of masks? I, I know you just mentioned, um, you know, this event where people were trying to distribute mm-hmm. masks. Do we, do we have an understanding of which, and of course we talked about this right. uh, last week, there's uh, issues with, with mask usage among Pretty much, pretty much everyone. But w- right. what did you hear more, more specifically um, within these communities, and, and what's being done to make sure that people mm-hmm. uh, have have masks if they if they don't have them? Right, and th- that's a kind of a good point you touched on there. Like this isn't these aren't I don't think entirely unique things to to Spanish speakers or to Latinos in general. Um, you know, both Lydia and Dalen kind of touched on that too. And they said, you know, you see, you go out there and you see white people not wearing masks. You go out there and you see black people not wearing masks. Like you see everybody not wearing masks. Um, but th- so they said that they've been basically slowly able to build trust, but that, you know, it's just sort of small. Um, they're only one organization and it's only you know, they're only able to operate here locally. And what worried them was that not enough is being done, um, you know, broadly speaking across the state to try and reach Spanish speakers in particular about the danger posed by the virus. And they said that, you know, they've been able to build some trust, like after they do have like face-to-face conversations and they see the, the, uh, you know, community volunteers out there wearing masks and they see the police out there um, wearing masks, they go, okay, well, I guess we'll start doing that. Um, but it, it, they said it literally has taken like going door to door, person to person, um, you know, having that kind of sort of risky face to face interaction um, with a lot of people to sort of change, um, you know, change those attitudes. Yeah, I think to Greg's point, um, it, you know, 
what mask wearing depends on good education, right? So we're, we, of course, have seen a lot of disinformation about like the dangers of wearing masks and these kind of conspiracy theories about it. Um, in order to combat those ideas, you need good education. I think to circle back around, like that, this education may exist for Spanish speakers, but it's not it's not penetrating these communities very well. I think is what we are hearing. Um, and I also wanted to touch on what. Um, one of you asked about, you know, church going communities. Um, I was just on a webinar actually with, uh, this man, Dr. Lawrence Brown with the university of Wisconsin. He studies, uh, racial and ethnic disparities, um, and how they impact health across the United States. And he said, someone asked a question about COVID and how it's impacting, uh, Latino communities and black communities. And he said, well, especially in the South, um, these are communities that are often, really close knit. And so they have a lot of community events, they go to church, they Mm -hmm. see each other quite often. And that can be something that could exasperate spread and transmission of the disease. Um, So that's really unfortunate to see. Um, But certainly just to reiterate, like we're seeing this trend too in other Southern states. Um, So there's some conclusions to draw there. The people that you spoke with, did they have any suggestions or ideas for things that maybe they want um, DHEC to do more or, or other organizations to do more, just, just any ideas of, um, how to get that, that education piece, um, more mm-hmm. out there. Cause it, it sounds so difficult. I'm, I'm imagining, you know, some, some in- very dedicated individuals trying to reach a lot of people is what this right. sounds like. Right? right. So I'm wondering if, if there were any ideas of, um, how to spread that information a little more widely throughout the state. You know, when I talked with Fetter, uh, they said it's all about finding those brokers, the community brokers who have a strong voice in their in these communities. Um, those people can be hard to find. And part of the problem, too, is we don't have a lot of Spanish language media, I think, in places like yeah. South Carolina, where the population's a little um, smaller. Um, so, but but I think that's the key thing. And, and really, I, I want to say in DHEC's defense that they have created these materials. I've seen them. They're in Spanish. They're really identical to the English language materials, except, you know, in Spanish. Um, and I, I think that they're doing what they know how to, um, to reach these communities. But the imperative to do so has really never been higher. So they're, they're trying to forge new connections and new pathways that maybe like weren't really there before. Um, and so that's, that's a really tough challenge. And I don't know, Greg, I don't, maybe you have something to add about that challenge. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, that Lydia brought up in particular was um, she was, she was sort of, I guess I'll say like sort of disappointed in, in the fact that um, there's been kind of this, uh, I don't want to say inconsistent messaging, but sort of a, a lack of willingness to have like consistency throughout the state. And, you know, part of what we've seen from, um, at least in terms of statewide rules, like there's no, uh, you know, at the time that we talked and stuff um, or that I talked to Lydia, you know, there was no like statewide mask mandate and all that stuff. And, um, and so she said, you know what they like, her big point basically was, um, you know, Spanish speakers see the messaging going out, even if it's in English, you know, they might have like a, a child or a, a you know, a, a um, a family friend or some other relative that does speak English, you know, adequately and, and can kind of translate for them. And they see the messaging going out. 
um, from kind of the top leadership in the state um, and, you know, from the federal government. And they see kind of conflicting messages about masks and they see um, basically, you know, she described mixed messaging. And so they, they kind of are skeptical of that makes them only more skeptical basically about, you know, do masks actually work? Do I need to wear them? Um, you know, if, if the, you know, president or someone is saying you don't need to wear a mask, then I'm not going to need you know, I'm not going to wear a mask. And so she said, Oh, you know, I, I, like what we need is a statewide mask requirement and like heavy, heavy, stiff fines if you don't wear a mask. And, you know, that, that's, she said, among the people that are kind of uh, on board and understanding about the risks posed by the virus, she said, a lot of people were asking, like, why isn't, you know, why isn't the government requiring all this? Like, why isn't there, um, you know, this framework that's very clear and, and concise and to the point? Yeah, it's it's interesting because that's that's also you know something we were talking about last week when we were just talking about masks and mask policies overall. And yeah. I and I think like we were saying a little earlier, um, those 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 issues of, of people feeling um, you know confused about the the messaging over over time and and about you know what is what is the mask rule. Um, you know, say in, in, in Charleston versus, um, right. versus in another city. So it's, it's interesting. It's, it's like taking all of those, all of those things that the entire state's population is kind of confused about and trying to reason through adding in for some people, a language barrier. And then on top of that, other, uh, cultural and historic reasons, right. To not, yeah. um, to not have trust in, uh, in, in, in authorities, right. Like you were saying, so it's. Um, so many of these issues are just being felt by by everyone, but then compounded right with these these other factors to it as well. What I've been thinking about while we've been talking about all of this is how, you know, in the last several years, I, I've been involved in a lot of different reporting projects on um, issues like this. And, you know, this this is very, very far from being the first time that I've, I've heard about, um, you know, racial disparities in, in healthcare in South Carolina and healthcare outcomes. Um, and I'm sure MK that that's something that you've (laughs) covered as well. Uh, I'm just, I'm kind of wondering like how, how do we sort of connect the dots here? I mean, what, what's the, the big picture here? Why, why, why is this a, a story that repeats yeah. Over and over again. You know, it's something that resonated with me from from what, uh, again, Dr. Lawrence Brown, the researcher I was listening to earlier, said he was he was saying that there there are multitudes of studies that show that slavery um, mm-hmm. has continued effects on people's health. So you know, the descendants of slaves or former slaves um, fare worse. There's so many reasons for that, I think. Um, and of course that speaks specifically to the black community. Um, but that's, that's the big conclusion that, you know, has been proven time and again. Um, these people were exploited by the medical community in the past. Um, 
don't get me started on J. Marion Sims. And this, yeah. this, he's this doctor from South Carolina who um, ex- used slaves, basically slave women, as, um, for his experiments into uh, the fistula, which is um, a, a condition in pregnancy. Um, and was able to make medical advances really at the expense of these um, enslaved women. But, but these, these deep histories are really the reasons why we're seeing these disparities persist today. And I know that doesn't draw as clear of a line to, you know, our Hispanic population, but you can probably draw some similar um, conclusions based on, you know, the ways that we've, we've treated um, Spanish speaking and Latino people. Mm -hmm. Um, Those things have permeating effects um, and we haven't yet to solve them. So I think that they're just really amplified by this pandemic um they were there before but now we're we're seeing them kind of come out in full force in a really sad way so yeah last week we went through the latest uh, data and figures that we have on the pandemic in South Carolina and we wanted to go through some of those those overall updates again this week just to give a picture of what has happened since then so well, what I what I wanted to, I guess, kind of talk about is, you know, that we've been, I think, waiting a really long time to see if uh, we would start to see deaths tick up. And, uh, you know, based on the, the numbers that I've been looking at, I, I think there's basically about a 24, 20, 23 to 25 day lag in uh, when we see cases reported and when we see um, correlated deaths. And so that actually corresponds to about now in terms of like when we started to see the, the cases, daily cases spike up. And we actually have in the last week seen, um, much higher death numbers than we have been seeing. I mean, I think that's definitely to be expected given, um, the higher rate of growth in cases that we've uh, experienced over the last you know, few weeks or so. Um, I'll say too that like on the flip side, uh, hospitals are reporting fewer, fewer cases of patients needing ventilator assistance, uh, given the high numbers of hospitalizations. And that's in part because the population of patients coming in are younger and Mm -hmm. in part because the way we're treating COVID-19 patients is changing. Um, but again, that's not to discount the fact that we are seeing increased numbers in, in deaths, right. um, as Emery pointed out. Right. Yeah. I think, and I think that that's an important bit of uncertainty to, uh, um, you know, communicate with people is that there, there is, you know, I think, like I said, we, we've been kind of waiting to see our, our deaths going to spike proportionally to the cases, um, and I think that the evidence suggests so far that maybe we are starting to. That being said, there's there there are good reasons to think that that maybe the spike won't be um, a- as acute as it was back in May, um, precisely because of, of the the factors that that MK mentioned. Like we are seeing more young patients, and and we just we do know that the. Uh, mortality risk for for younger patients is lower and of course as she said too yeah we're, we're a little bit better at treating um the disease now than than we were of course at the same time uh 
I think it's important to also point out that um, among the, the myriad list of things that we don't know, um, it's, it's unclear that just because you don't necessarily die from coronavirus, that you don't come away with it or come away from that experience with, a, you know, a perhaps lifelong um, consequences. Right. And that that's something that we we have seen some some limited evidence of, um, you know. So that that's not not to suggest that that young people are um, safe, so to speak. Right. You know, right. Plus, we just we don't know if or when this the the younger population of patients is going to start infecting the older population you know those demographics mm-hmm. could always shift like and not to say that it will for sure but again it could we just don't mm-hmm. really know it's yet another unknown we have yeah i guess uh, another thing to um that, that i think is is interesting and, and i'll be interested to see what happens today we're recording this on wednesday july 8th um so yesterday we got kind of an interesting um, update from DHEC. The uh, number of new cases yesterday was, uh, you know, somewhere around 900, um, which is way, way, way down from where it was a couple of days ago. But at the same time, um, the number of tests that they reported was also down by almost, almost about half. Um it's almost certainly related to the holiday weekend. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's probably pretty safe to, to assume that that number does not reflect a sudden, like it, it does not reflect a sudden decrease in, in transmission. It just reflects the fact that um, it was a lot harder to get tested over the holiday weekend. And so mo- a lot of people probably did not. Um, I think it's important to note though, at the same time, the percent of the tests that were um, coming in positive were about the same. Mm-hmm. So that, that suggests that, you know, if, if we uh, had done the same number of tests as we had been doing, then we probably would have seen, um, you know, new case numbers like we have been seeing. And I also won't be surprised if today and maybe tomorrow's numbers are kind of similar just because um, the, that holiday weekend was a three day period. So I'm, I'm not sure how, long we'll expect to see that uh that artifact in the data that being said we uh did hit a record for hospitalizations yesterday and hospitalizations are at an all-time high and they have basically almost like tripled since a month ago um i mk i do know you've uh done a lot of reporting on the situation at, at the hospital. So can you kind of just like summarize what you know there? Yeah. I mean, it's getting to a point where the urgency I'm hearing and the voices of the people I've been interviewing since March, uh, is getting higher. Uh, I I'm starting to personally get pretty nervous about it. Um, we don't have any hospitals at this point who've told us anyway that they, you know, haven't been able to treat anyone because of capacity issues. But I'll say too, like, and this is something that I'm writing about for tomorrow's newspaper, is this puts a huge stress on the staff of hospitals. 
Um, and so while they can add, you know, physical space and they can, they've, they've added a lot of ventilators, for instance, um, to their repertoire since all this broke out, um, they, they really have a finite number of staff members to an extent, you know, they can bring in travel nurses and that kind of thing, but, but every state is struggling with the same thing right now. Granted South Carolina, frankly, to a much larger extent than most. Um, and so the more we can do to reduce the spread to me, the biggest motivating factor is just making these healthcare workers lives easier. Um, these people are under stress right now. I think mm-hmm. people need to understand that. Yeah. I also keep thinking about the the anxiety that they have to be going through with this going on for for months now, and and almost the um, the anxiety right. of, of of a few months ago. You know, not being to the point where many other states were. This kind of right. um, buildup, and then months later, after this fatigue, I'm sure of of preparing for it and, and treating people, um, getting this surge now. I mean, um, Jennifer Hawes wrote a story about a, um, a, a nurse here who went to, uh, New York to help them when they were overwhelmed and then came back here. And then now, you know, is, is experiencing a surge here. I definitely recommend listeners read, read that story, but, um, just that, just that fatigue of having this so late in the game when there are so many things going on in the world, right? I just, I, I can't imagine that kind of um, pressure, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's right. One of the things I I wanted to know, Emery, you were talking about the percent positive. If I'm remembering correctly, that was around twenty percent yesterday. Twenty point seven, and it, yeah, yeah, and it's and it's been uh, lingering around that point. Um, I've been, uh, keeping track of, of which states are putting South Carolina on their list of, uh, states that have a mandated quarantine. Essentially, these states are warning people about traveling, uh, to or from South Carolina. Um, and and just for perspective, most, most of those states are putting their cutoff point around 10%. Um, one, I, I believe Chicago is using 15%, but for the most part, other states are essentially putting putting states in the at-risk category of, you know, we're not recommending that our residents go there at the 10% mark of uh, positive cases. And like we just said, we're about double that. Last thing, uh, data-wise, I wanted to kind of talk about is I know in the last couple of days, I've seen a couple of different things um, pop up. Um, I know I've I've been seeing kind of circulating this uh, map that Dartmouth put together um, that shows pretty much what are like hospital referral regions. It's it's kind of a wonky um, way of, of splitting the, the country up into areas of that are kind of like centered on like uh, cities. Um, our our hospital referral region is actually kind of big, um, kind of extends almost all, all the way up and down the um, South Carolina coast. And anyway, though, it, it sh- shows that uh, the, the Charleston region, the low country region, the coastal region of South Carolina is, is one of the uh, fastest growing in the country. Um, this morning, I know I saw going around um, New York Times put together a little chart that basically 
imagined if every state in the United States were a country, how would those country, those like states rank worldwide? And uh, South Carolina, by their reckoning, came in third worldwide. Um, so I think, you know, there, there, there are arguments to be made about, um, you know, the different ways that, that these, uh, stats are calculated, but I think any way you slice it, the, the bottom line is, is that the, uh, the situation here in South Carolina is, is very serious and is among the, the worst that we've seen certainly in the nation and perhaps in the world so far. Um, then I know there, there's another thing I wanted to talk about, which is this, uh, the Harvard global health initiative, um, has a very similar project. Um, you know, they, they crunch the numbers and the interesting thing that, that they've done is they've kind of categorized every County in the country into one of four categories, um, with the, worst or red category being um, a, a situation where they think that uh, a stay at home order is needed um, and is basically the only way to, to slow down community spread. Um, by, by their reckoning, there are 18 counties in South Carolina, including Charleston County um, that fall into that red category, that category that they think um, should have um, like mandatory stay at home orders. And the, the interesting thing to me there is, is that, so, you know, we did that back in March, um, here in Charleston and then to varying degrees around the state. Uh, it, it's hard to overstate how much more serious the situation is today than it was back then. And yet that is really not part of the conversation. Um, we're really not talking about, um, you know, mandatory like stay at home orders or, or shutting, you know, returning to, to a, a situation where we're shutting businesses down. And, and yet, as I said, we're, we're far, far beyond the, the thresholds that we reached when we decided to do that the first time. So yeah, I, I think it's, I, th I just, think it's surprising that that's not really part of the the broader discussion that we're having right now um but yeah it, it's it's like i said it's it's hard to you know without fear mongering or anything it, it is hard to overstate you know that we're in a very 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 serious situation here in the state of south carolina and particularly in the low country yeah i think that's about as clearly as you could put it but but you're you're correct. We're not we're not hearing um, discussions right now of stay at home orders. Um, and and I was just looking at that that map that you were just speaking about. It's uh, that that code red that you were um, describing. That it, they call that the the tipping point. Stay at home mm -hmm. orders, not only recommended but necessary, is is the way that they word it on on that. Um, and that's the status they they gave to eighteen counties, like you said, in in South Carolina. Um, the level the level that's less severe than that orange. Um, you know, they say stay at home orders. It advise, but again, they say 
stay-at-home orders, they use the word necessary for, for places that they give that red uh, level. Yep. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm feeling anxious, but we probably should. That's okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, just to just to end this on a on a slightly less dismal note, um, how about you guys share with us how you spent a safe and masked July Fourth holiday? <laughs> oh boy, I went up to Lake James with some coworkers, <laughs> and we camped. So we were socially distant, except for the people next to us who weren't socially distant. They were distant from us, but they were very loud until maybe 3 a.m. having a party, (laughs) which made me feel not so great about COVID. But we Mm -hmm. were very happy down in our tents, um, on our tent pad, and spent most of the day floating in the lake. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. I stayed here in Charleston, but... Uh, my roommates and I caught the kind of caught people that were, uh, or caught caught the free fireworks show from mm-hmm. across the Ashley River. So that was nice. Yeah, fi- fireworks are technically illegal in the city of Charleston. But, <laughs> sure, <laughs> they're, they're technically, they're technically they're illegal in a lot of places. <laughs> you definitely yeah. wouldn't know it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. There was there was basically a, a free citywide fireworks show yeah. here and I imagine pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And what are the best ways to get in touch with both of you? Readers have questions. Listeners, if listeners have listeners and readers, hopefully they're both have sure. questions. <laughs> um well my uh yeah two main two main routes of communication uh my email address is g-y-e-e at postandcourier.com, and that's all spelled out. Uh, and my cell is 843-323-9175. And I'm at 843-607-4312, and I'm MK Wildeman pretty much everywhere, so that's MK Wildy Man on Twitter, and same at postandcourier.com for email. Mm-hmm. And if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for this podcast, you can find us on Twitter at UnderstandSC. All right. Thanks, y'all, for joining us. We'll be back next week. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later.